Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Dan Coyle. He is, oh, I'll tell you a little bit about him uh, in just a minute, Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, his book called The Culture Playbook, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. And as you can uh, probably tell, it is all about culture and building culture and uh, some of the, the secrets of stuff around uh, culture as well. However, if this does happen to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, I do want to let you know that there's three things uh, that really inform a lot of what we do here on the on the podcast. The first is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. The second is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. And we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, no matter what that thing is. And today we're learning about, uh, what makes good culture, culture killers, um, and, you know, and as a leader, how, how can you develop that? And we're going to get into a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the, and what abouts or questions, um, and all of that stuff as it pertains to, to being, um, to being someone who can shape culture and, uh, in realizing that every, everyone can shape culture because everybody has a, a sphere of influence that they affect. And so that's what we're talking about today. However, if whether or not you've been, uh, or I guess whether you've been listening for a long time or this is your first episode, um, I would love to hear from you and some of the things that you're learning from, some of the things uh, that you would love us to talk about or cover here on the podcast as well. And the best place to reach out to me is Learner's Corner Podcast at gmail.com and would love to hear from you. Or if you're just interested in sharing some of the things that you're learning from, hit me up there as well. Now, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Daniel and I'll tell you, uh, what got me so interested in this. So Daniel Coyle is the New York times bestselling author of the culture code, the talent code, the little book of talent, the secret race, Lance Armstrong's war and hardball, a season in the projects. He also works as an advisor to the Cleveland guardians and lives in Cleveland, Ohio during the school year and in Homer, Alaska during the summer with his wife, Jen, and their four children. Cleveland, Ohio, let's go very close uh, to where I am at as well. And so, um, as I mentioned, today we're talking about the culture playbook. And what got me interested in this is, you know, I, uh, you know, I consider myself to be a leader and there's people that I'm uh, responsible for and responsible to. And so I'm always trying to look for the ways that I could be uh, a better leader. And I remember coming across this, uh, his original book called The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Effective, or sorry, Highly Successful Groups. And there were so many different things in there that stood out to me. Um, and there's there's so many great stories in this. I'm a sucker for uh, books that have great research and great stories. And this has both, and The Culture Code is both of them. And so whenever the culture playbook came out, I was like, yep, let's see if we can make this happen. And thankfully we were able to make it happen. So without any further wait, let's dive into my conversation with Dan Coyle.
Well, Dan, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast. Hey, it's great to be here with you, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the things uh, that I wanted to ask you is how, uh, how did you become, uh, or what did you, hmm, I, I guess I'm even like uh, phrasing it cause I don't, um, but what got you interested in learning about culture and culture building and what makes great cultures? That's funny. I've been thinking about that myself lately a little bit too. You know, I've always, um, always been really, really interested in like a lot of people in great performance, right? Like in just what makes certain individuals and groups stand out and be great. So I keen interest in that growing up. Um, and as I pursued that, I developed this career. I, I almost went into, into medicine and took this turn into journalism at the last minute. And I developed this career around the science of performance. Like, what is that? Like those, these people are really good at, you know, sport or opera or politics or whatever what's behind that because it looks like magic but it's not of course it's not really magic there's a thing there right and so that interest in individual talent led me to write this book called the talent code which was about individual talent how it's how it grows in your brain what it's made of how to get more of it and that experience of writing that book and spending you know five years in that landscape took me inside these, these rooms, these crazy places. And some of them were locker rooms, some of them were schools, but they felt different. They were, they were places where there was like this extra energy, this sense of possibility, this sort of selflessness that, that we've all experienced in life, right? We've all been a part of great teams. We've all been a part of great institutions. We've had that feeling when we walk into a school or a bakery or a locker room, it's like, man, it feels good here. Like something different, something cool is happening here, right? And that feeling is what sent me on this journey. Like that feeling of like, okay, we all talk about great chemistry, great group chemistry. What's, what is that? Like, how do you get it? How do you get it when you lose it? How do you get more of it? Um, and it's not... It turns out it's not just about being successful. Um, it, it's it's about there's there's a real process behind there, a real process that has to do with our our ancient social brains and and the way we send signals about around groups. And so that's what led me to this to this interest because I find it just like endlessly fascinating. Like there's this whole language happening, this language of behaviors that's kind of happening underneath our noses. And when you tune into it and start to think, oh why is this group so good? And why is this other group not so good? It lets you kind of figure things out. So I, I sort of got addicted to that feeling of being able to look through a, a special lens and, and figure things out. Yeah. And, and I remember whenever I, I was first reading the culture code, I think you were the person who introduced me uh, to this idea of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. um, and that has been such a game changer for me personally and my own leadership and just thinking through um and just thinking through how I lead and my teams and everything. Um, right. But Such a simple idea, right? It, it hit me the same way where it's like, you know, when you talk about leadership, usually they talk about kind of vision and uh, narrative and strength and all this stuff. And like safety, like, do you share a future with this person? Do you have a voice here? It's, it's so fundamental that it's easy to overlook. And then you go to great groups and it's like, oh, that's why they do that. That's exactly what they're doing there. Right. It's, yeah. it's building that foundation and that you have to be connected before you can do anything together. And safety is how we connect. Yeah. Can you talk maybe a little bit more about 
like the the things that maybe we just tend to overlook them because oh man that's that's too too simple that's too um like that's not gonna work like everybody you know you just the things that you take for granted right right well it's funny you know with this new project the culture playbook it was sort of built on some of those things that whole that was kind of the the originating idea and the idea came around, you know, a couple of years after the talent code came out there or the culture code rather came out, there was, you know, a, a desire to have like, just give me the action pieces, right? Just tell me what to do. And so I started, you know, collecting these, these things and ended up being 60 of them. Um, sort of real actions, basic actions that, um, that great cultures do. And the, the sort of head slapping part of it is that a lot of them are kind of simple and easily easy to overlook. Um, and I guess the biggest sort of category of those is, is around signals of vulnerability and simple moments where you stop and say something like, hey, um, what am I missing here, right? A simple pause where you offer and invite other people and you admit you don't have all the answers, right? That's the vulnerability piece. Like, I don't know, I, I don't, this is my first crack at this. Um, and, and you invite other people to go in as one of the, one of the guys I enjoyed spending time with most was a guy named Dave Cooper, who's a Navy SEAL master chief. And he's, he's the guy who trained the troops that got bin Laden and he's not the best shot and he's not the best swimmer and he's not the best runner. Um, and he can't do the most pull-ups, but he's the best at creating high trust teams because he understands this vulnerability piece as, as he puts it the four most important words a leader can say are I screwed that up. Hmm. And that it is so obvious, I think, and so powerful to say, look, as a leader, your main job is to, to figure out what's going on and get people engaged in solving the problem, not in protecting your status and acting like you have all the answers, but in actually creating a platform where people can say, Hey, I screwed that up. I think you screwed that up. How are we going to do it better next time? And so uh, the seals have this wonderful way of operationalizing that moment called an AAR. It's a tip I write about in the playbook, but it's an after action review. And it's super simple. Like after an event, like after this podcast, you and I would meet up and we would ask three questions. What went well? What didn't go well? And what will we do differently next time? And it's kind of a hard meeting to have because I'd be saying stuff like, uh, Caleb, you know, that question you asked me, it wasn't that, it, I think it would be better if you tried this. And you'd be doing the same thing to me. And that meeting, that, that moment of vulnerability is what would actually build trust for us, right? We'd be stronger going forward because we went through that. And that's the big insight that moments of vulnerability, when they are shared in a group, make the group stronger. It's, it's no different than exercising your muscles. Like it feels painful and that's a sign that you're getting stronger. No pain. Yeah. And I, and I want to dive into a little bit later, you know, some, some of those more specific actions um, that you talk about. Um, well, I want to go back to something else that you said uh a little bit earlier as well. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, just as, as there's things that would probably surprise us that help build culture, there's probably some things or some beliefs that we have about building culture that, um, maybe they don't work as well as we, uh, think that they do, or maybe they just don't work at all. And I would just love to hear from you, like some of the things that you went into maybe thinking or some of the things that, yeah, you know what, 
a lot of people say this about culture, but it actually, you know, maybe it doesn't work that way. I would love to hear some of those things that you discovered. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think one of the biggest ones was around brilliant jerks. You know, we all love brilliance, right? We want to have brilliant people in our groups. We want to have Mozart and Michael Jordan and, and stuff like that. And Steve Jobs, right? He was a jerk, but man, but he was really brilliant. What you find out pretty quickly when you hang around really great cultures is that they have zero tolerance for brilliant jerks, like zero, um, because they are such culture killers. Um, in fact, the San Antonio Spurs have kind of operationalized this. They, they, they have a scouting sheet that they use to evaluate players, high school and college players. And at the bottom of the sheet, after the shooting percentage and their height and their range and everything else, they have a single line with a box next to it. And the line is not a spur. And if that box is checked, they will not draft that player, no matter how good that player is. So that is a huge one. Brilliant jerks are absolute culture killers. Um, another surprising culture killer is success. This is an interesting one to me um, because success actually solidifies what the way you do things now, right? Like if you are successful with this, I mean, to do a sports analogy, if you're successful running this style offense, it is really hard to learn it, to force yourself to learn a new one, right? If you're successful as a rock band playing these four songs, it's really hard to go learn a new song when you're like, hey, we are crushing it with these four songs. It's the exact same thing with the group. Um, it's, it's so to actually have the guts to when you're at the top of your game, change your game is really a sign of, of great cultures. That's actually a saying from the New Zealand All Blacks. When you're at the top of your game is the time to change your game. Mm. Um, and they're one of the most successful rugby teams of all time. And, and that because they actually do that, it takes a lot of guts, it takes a lot of reflection. Um, it, it takes a lot of togetherness, takes a lot of vulnerability uh, to actually overcome kind of the rigidity that success can sometimes create. Um, so a lot of times you have companies and we just went through something like this with with the pandemic and everything right huge forced change for everybody and at the beginning of the pandemic there were certain companies that you looked at them and you said like oh they're going to be successful they're going to be great and and there were certain groups where you said they're really going to struggle right and in the first group you'd have peloton i mean they looked great going into the pandemic right it's it's they're they're making a machine that you can use at home to stay in shape no one can belong to health clubs anymore no one can go in it's dangerous it's a really nice machine they have all these great classes people love it right and on the other end of the spectrum if you had places that would struggle restaurants right how can you have a business when there's no business no one can come into your restaurant and but what happened was actually because of a bunch of bad decisions and because of the way success kind of crystallized their decision-making process, Peloton actually is in an awful place right now. They just fired their CEO. They made a series of terrible decisions and investments. Um, the business is really in the dumpster. Whereas the restaurants around me uh, and, and restaurant industry as a whole has way outperformed expectations because they have adapted. And because they have been flexible and because they haven't, they didn't have that success to cause them to ice up and freeze in the way they were doing things. They invented new ways of serving people. They got involved in apps. They had created ghost kitchens. They did an innovation after innovation to self-organize around the problem. And that's really going to be the key going forward. I think in cultures, like, can you self-organize around problems? Um, places that are really sort of stiff and stuck in their success 
are going to have a really hard time adapting and places that can on the fly create new ways of, of interrelating and new ways of cooperating and new ways of innovating are going to be the ones that that succeed i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on um that flexibility and adaptation that you're talking about and um you know, if, if you're this, if you're the CEO or if you're at the top leader in your organization, you know, you can, you probably make that happen a lot easier as opposed to being, you know, maybe the head of a department or even, um, even just a team member or, or just an employee. How do you, I would be, I would love to hear your thoughts on how do you like have that adaptive or that flexible mindset whenever the people who are leading you might not be as adaptive or as flexible. Yeah, no, and that really leads to another, you know, another sort of dimension of your question is like, how do you kind of influence things from the middle, you know, no. from the bottom? Like it's, you don't have any, the power, right? These other people are the ones who have the power and you do not have it. And how, how do you do that? And and it's, it, it's, it's really an interesting question and it's a hard question. There's not an easy silver bullet answer. You know, it's a, it's a complex situation where I think the way forward is, a, is in a couple of sort of pillar ideas. One is your culture is kind of the 15 feet around you at all times. You know, you may not have control over all the huge things, but you do have control over your immediate environment and, and in the way you interact with those people virtually and in real life and the way the signals that you send and the time that you spend together and the literal enjoyment you have in those relationships, like building those relationships is something that's within people's power. And those relationships are the core of whatever change is going to happen and whatever whatever is going to happen. The second pillar would sort of be experiment. Experiments are really good in this space. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have the power to change policy, but you do have the power to do like a few little experiments and then share those results with people. Uh, there's nothing like, somebody once said, um, you know, example isn't just one thing that changes people's minds, it's the only thing. And when you are exemplifying some change or trying to interact in some new way, it can be incredibly powerful. I came across a, a good example of that. Um, there's a company in Michigan and there's a group of them that just got this idea. And the idea was we need to find the best coffee on the planet to bring it into our office. All right. Kind of a stupid thing, right? It's just coffee, but they turned it into this kind of this, epic Indiana Jones mission to scour the planet to find the best bean, the best roaster, the best machine, the best milk, the best temperature. Like it became this huge cooperative, deeply fun project. And it became a story around the organization. Like, look at, look at them go, you know, that's an incredible little group of people that's having an impact on, on all of us. Um, there's a concept there called deep fun and it's when you interact with the people around you in a way that changes the experience you have together you're not there's fun sort of comes in two flavors there's shallow fun which is let's you know playing ping pong and having beanbag chairs and having you know snacks in the office and that's just like pleasurable stuff right the fizzy feeling of being together that's shallow fun but actually doing stuff together that's hard and that's interesting and that's rewarding, that's, that's deep fun. And so I would say that would be another, another sort of pillar of that idea of influencing. What deep fun can you have with the people you work with? Um, maybe it's an experiment about a new onboarding system. Um, 
Maybe it's an idea exchange. Um, that's another sort of method that I write about a little bit in the playbook. You know, getting together with like-minded organizations to figure out what they do well. Hmm. Most, you know, all I would say all good kind of cultural growth uh, at some point is kind of about learning, right? You know, you're like, if you're trying to influence your culture one way, it's sort of a learning experience. So getting together with another organization and saying, hey, you know, you guys are really good at hiring. How did you do that? How'd you get so good at hiring? You guys are really good at coding. How did you get so good at coding? Um, and, and learning from that. And that can be a way to influence culture, having an idea exchange um, or any other sort of experimental thing, even though, even though you're, you're not the one with the quote unquote power. Yeah. Do you talk more about the like the learning practices that you've seen um, organizations use in developing and growing their culture? Yeah, it's big, right? There's this there's this dilemma that we have um, at at work uh, now, and it's sort of bigger than it's ever been. Which is there's sort of two paths you can travel at work. You can the productivity path or the relationship path. The productivity path is get it done, right? The list of things you have to do always gets longer and it's more and more and more and more and getting things done and having a day where you checked everything off your to-do list. Now, the relationship path is really different. It feels inefficient. The relationship path are when you check in on people. It's when you carve out time to talk to your team about like, how did it go? What could we have done differently there, right? It doesn't feel very productive when you do it but it is incredibly productive. There was actually this cool experiment that Francesca Gino did where people were trained and they worked at these jobs for, I think it was 15 hours. The only difference in the two groups was that at the end of each day, one group got the chance to reflect for 15 minutes about the job. The rest of the people in the other group just worked, but that reflection increased their skill by 23%. So that moment of like taking a minute and saying, what are we doing here? What's going well? What's not going well? Makes you smarter, better, faster. And, and so finding time, that's, that's the big, if there's a big sort of headline to put over this, it's pausing is pr productivity. Hmm. Pausing is productive. Pausing is productive because if you can create reflection, reflection makes you so much smarter. Reflection makes you so much better. There's a, a cool group called IDEO. They're probably the world's best design firm. And they've, they've got this cool little trick, a little habit. It's called a flight check. And they do it whenever they have a project team. And their idea is that working on a project is not that different than taking a flight. And so they have three meetings, pre-flight, mid-flight, post-flight. And each of these meetings is not designed to talk about the project. It's designed to talk about the team. Like in the pre-flight meeting, they'd ask like, okay, how are we gonna interact? Like, I like to work in the morning. Do you guys like to work in the morning? Like, how should we make decisions? Um, how, should we, um, how should we communicate? And, and, and to get that on the table, like have sort of a team charter of how we're gonna, this is how we're gonna do it. And the mid-flight, you check in with, how's it going? Like, are you learning what you hope to learn on this? Who else do we need to bring in? Where are our, where are we strong? Where are we weak? And then the, the, the post-flight is, is sort of the same thing. Like, what did we learn? Did, who can we teach this to? 
where you're carving out these moments where you're zooming out, you're looking at yourself and your team from a distance and you're learning. So that moment, like making that moment a habitual thing. And in today's world, that's harder than ever because we don't have time. We have, we have this disease of more, right? This disease of more. And one of the coolest little tricks that I put in the book too is the subtraction game. And it's where you stop your team and you have a 20 minute meeting and you say, what are we doing now that is not adding value? That is that once was useful and is not useful anymore. What are we doing now that is adding needless friction? And you identify those things and then you stop doing them. Stop doing them. Like if you don't ever have a subtraction game, you will just forever end up like, you know, like those pictures of, of Atlas carrying around the world on, on his shoulders um, because stuff is only going to move faster and it's only going to get more, 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 more. So carving out time to be super intentional about and, and really uh, reflective about how we work together is, uh, is that learning moment that distinguishes strong cultures from weak cultures. Yeah. Uh, going back to the reflection time or even like that reflection period that you were talking about, is there anything that you learned in there about how, um, how some of the, the best cultures go about uh, working in that reflection time? Because here's, here's the example that like I think of um, like, you can have like a really good like outcome and you can get the result that you wanted, but it may uh, it may have come at, you know, maybe uh, at the expense of your values or something along those lines. And so is there anything that you've learned in regards to like evaluating through the process of like, not only did we have a good outcome, but we did it the way that we want to do it here too. It's huge. Right. And that, that is really the role, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, stories and meaning pop up whether you want to or not. And that's why one of the most important times to stop is at the end of a project. That's something else I write about in the book. You know, the, the, um, this idea that you should mark the ends of things. There's a thing that happens in our lives where we finish something and the first instinct is to click over. I'm done. Thank God. Throw it in the drawer and move on to the next item on the list. And that's deeply wrong. To take, you have to take a minute, both as an individual and as a team, and say, all right, hold on there. What impact did that have? Is that the impact that we hoped it was going to have? Um, did we compromise our values on the way there? Who do I have to appreciate? Who really helped? And there's a, there's a cool tradition that Amy Poehler, the comedian and director and writer, she has um, at the end of every project, they have a, a dinner and they do a daisy chain of toasts where I would toast Caleb and I would say what I appreciated, what you brought to the project. And then you would toast someone else in turn. And in that way, it, the toast kind of goes right around the table. And it's, you know, to go back to our first point, this is really simple stuff. Yeah. Just because it's simple, though, doesn't mean it's not hard to do. And the hardness of it is in realizing its value and realizing, because it doesn't feel productive. It doesn't feel like we're doing anything when we do that. But in fact, we're doing the most important work. We're creating meaning together. We're like realizing that, we're, decide, we're deciding, well, that project, actually, it was really hard while we did it, but think about the, the impact it's going to have on us as an organization and on the world we work in, or on the, maybe it has a huge impact on the way we do things, or maybe it had a huge impact on our own learning. Um, continually being willing to 
and I guess that goes back to that vulnerability piece to say, wow, we came a long way and we had a lot of surprises and let, let, let's talk about what that means for good and for bad. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you about, um, and, uh, and, and it may not be uh, true of them today, but it's just the the thing that came to my mind is you talk a lot about the San Antonio Spurs and you even mentioned them here uh, in our conversation today. But I just had this thought of, um, you know, for the for the Spurs, it's been about a decade since they've won an NBA championship um, oh. and they haven't made the playoffs in, in about five, I think about five years or so. And so what came to my mind is how do you how do you balance the tension between we we are the culture that we want versus we are not experiencing the success that we may want, even though we are living out the culture that we want. Yeah, I know. That is that is that is a big that is a big thing. And I think it's in kind of defining the and, and celebrating and spotlighting the impact you're having on each other's lives. You know, when when Tim Duncan retired from the team, he went and coached for several years. And there was a time where a player uh, was a practice was a very demanding practice. The player, a player threw up and Tim Duncan was wiping up vomit. Tim Duncan is probably one of the top three basketball players of all time. Uh, he's a he's a MVP, all star, four time championship winner. And He's there mopping up vomit on a practice court on a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, he could be on any beach in the world. And instead he's doing that. And the kind of depth of that relationship is hard to overstate that he would do that. So the joy that comes out of those relationships and you see that same um, deep connection in, in outfits, you know, as, as, as wide ranging as, you know, Pixar or even the Navy SEALs uh, when, when they will leave the Navy SEALs and then they will come back and stay in deep touch with those, with those people, because it is one of life's great joys to solve hard problems with people you admire. So the, the, it never gets reconciled. You know, it's not like, you know, oh, we're, we're, our, our joy meter is a hundred. So it's okay if our winning record is only 550. Um, but it gets put into the calculation of how people want to spend their lives and who they want to spend it with. Um, and, you know, in, in an era where, you know, you've got, you know, a lot of kind of win at all costs behavior and we're we're increasingly realizing the the cost of success can sometimes be incredibly debilitating um finding a culture and sustaining a culture that is you know that sort of balances in some way that the kind of joy and relational and the real life piece of it with the successful piece of it um i think seems more and more and more appealing uh, to live on the top of mount everest um, is a hard place to live but you can you can have a really rewarding life living on the lower slopes. Yeah, that even gets me thinking of just just as you were saying, understanding what is most important in life. And it's always, uh, you know, I, I love learning from Greg uh, Popovich, who's, you know, who's the Spurs coach. And just at least what I've listened to him, it's so interesting listening to him and him just saying, yeah, basketball is not like the most important thing at life, which first one to say that, right? Yeah. This is a game. This is a game, people. 
Right. And, and he brings that to his, to his life. You know, when he's, when it's the night before, one of the stories I tell in the book, it's the night before, I think the 2015 NBA finals and they're getting ready to play the Miami heat. And Popovich starts talking about Eddie Mabo day, which is a holiday for Australian indigenous. It, it celebrates Eddie Mabo who sued the government to get his land back and won. And so it's a huge holiday and they have an Australian indigenous player on the Spurs, this guy, Patty Mills. And Patty Mills can't believe it. It's like the night before the NBA finals and Popovich is like talking about Eddie Mabo day. And it's the most extraordinary demonstration of, I would say curiosity by Popovich, by of care of realizing this would be really important and really cool for the rest of his team to know about, and it would bring them together. Um, and so that I think is, is something that, you know, goes way past, um, you know, trophies. Mm, yeah. What else really stood out to you uh, from Greg Popovich or even just the Spurs culture? I think uh, the humility there, I mean, it, it, and the learningness of it, you know, it was funny when I, when I went to spend time there, when, when a journalist asked to spend time with the San Antonio Spurs, their answer is no, like they're not interested in having their culture, um, kind of celebrated or over-celebrated. So it was a firm no. And I found sort of a side door in because of their curiosity. I had some friends in common and it, I let them know that if, if they let me in, I would be able to create kind of a bridge to these other top performing organizations who have great cultures and they're really curious about culture. So in the end, they did let me spend time there. And what I found out is when they let you in, they let you in all the way. Like uh, R.C. Buford, the general manager, picked me up at the airport and then like didn't leave my side for like three and a half days. Like he was he he was asking me way more questions than I was asking him. The keenness of their curiosity to say, how can we do this better? And their willingness to reflect is off the charts. Um and you know, right now RC Buford is is building kind of a, a big complex that's going to involve healthcare and sports science and sports. And it's just it's just wonderfully um exploratory, I gotta say, being around them. You don't get the feeling they're got their arms folded and say, We got all the answers, we're really good. They are really at the bottom, they're learners, and that that's really fun to be around. Yeah. Uh I would love for you to tease out just this idea that you uh, talk about in, you know, the culture playbook of create conversations, not mandates. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's easy if somebody were to, if that's a line that I have in the, um, in the, in the intro, kind of in the instruction manual for the book, like this, some leaders might read a book like this and say, Oh, let's do, let's do number 12 and let's do number 14 and we'll do number 26. Um, and that is tempting because some of these actions are they're good, you know, like AARs that we've talked about, right? Or, or other other sort of flight checks, like let's do flight checks. Um, but the power in all of this cultural stuff is in a conversational zone, right? It, it, it rarely is powerful when something gets imposed from above like an authoritarian would, but it is powerful when a leader comes down and says, hey, there's this company idea that's got these flight checks before all the projects. What do you guys think about that? Um, just in the same way that those guys who went looking for the world's best coffee, it would not have been nearly as fun if the CEO had said, hey, go find the best coffee, right? It is about ownership. It is about co-creation. And so that happens in a conversational space, not a kind of mandate space. 
Yeah. What What might be? Uh, and and you mentioned one. Are there any other uh, steps or ways to begin creating those types of conversations? Yeah, I guess one one big one is is all around like signaling fallibility, just relentlessly signaling fallibility. Um, and <clears throat> a, a big a big thing to do early on is to I call it killing the happy smoothness fallacy. And the happy smoothness fallacy is the idea that everything's going to be smooth all the time. Like, you know, you, sometimes you go to meetings and there's no disagreements. And this idea we have about good culture is that it's happy and everybody always agrees. And that's actually not true. Like good cultures are places where people disagree intensely within the bonds of a good relationship. Um, it's places where they, where they really let the best idea win. And so this, this getting away from like, oh, everything's gonna be bubbly and happy is actually a really powerful, powerful thing to do. Another sort of simple thing is to hug the messenger. Like when somebody brings you bad news, it's not enough. We have the old saying, don't shoot the messenger. Um, it's not enough not to shoot them, <laughs> actually. Like you have to embrace that hard news and say, thank you for telling me. Like, like it's really important to, to get those lines of communication to have relationships that are safe enough for people to bring hard news because that's the thing that's gonna allow you to avoid doing what Peloton did. That's the thing that's gonna allow you to learn and grow and see yourself really, really clearly. Can you talk to me about the best of me documents? Yeah, there's um, especially in the in the world of hybrid work, you know, there's this learning curve in relationships where, uh, and it's it's so hard when we're looking through these these silly little windows at each other. Um, it, it becomes very hard to build a relationship. And a best of me document, uh, aka like a user's guide to me, um, is a way of speeding up that get to know you process. And you would share it with your team. And you might, you might always have it and be continually updating it. It's a real simple document. It, it's sort of like what works for me. I like to work in the morning. Um, I'm, I'm really, uh, I like to do all my creative work then. Um, a little bit of background on yourself. What doesn't work for you? What I need from my team is what I hope to deliver to my team. What I'm really excited to learn. It's, it's, you can kind of form it any way you want, but it's sort of an x-ray of of the work you um, and and your strengths maybe your weaknesses there's a nice phrase around weakness called your backhand like everyone's got a forehand and everybody's got a backhand maybe you're really good at, at thinking up ideas and you're less good at execution sharing what that backhand is in a document like that makes it really really easy for people to work with you and it's and it's a, again it's a it's a it's kind of painful to do. It's kind of tricky to do to talk about your strengths and weaknesses, but it's the kind of pain that brings people together. It's the kind of shared vulnerability that creates high trust. Hmm. I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts and, and what you were just saying about, um, you know, being, being more on like the, the idea side is the thing that sparked it in me. Um, but how do you, how do you handle like situations to wherever um, be like your, your skill set? isn't um hmm, i'm trying to think of how how i want to say this i guess your your skill set might be something to where it's like yeah that's that's typically you know an executive skill set but you but you find yourself 
of being in like a, a lower management level. How do you, how do you handle that type of stuff? I guess, I, I guess I don't quite understand the question, Caleb. Like you mean those sorts of um, where you're, where you're handling problems that are kind of above your pay grade. Uh, I, I don't know if they're um, above your pay grade, but I just think of um, things such as uh, like, let's, let's maybe say um, like, you're really good at seeing like problems or you're really good at like identifying um, like potential or opportunities in, um, in work, but that isn't your, but that isn't part of your part of your job but it's something that you're really good at how do you handle situations like that um to where yeah you're really good at something but it isn't part of your job so you're looking for a way to show that and you're looking for a way to grow that maybe is that yeah is that, is that yep. yeah and i think the, the the sort of um i think there's there's a cool uh concept that i write about in the book a little bit called flash mentoring mm-hmm and usually, you know, the typical approach with mentoring is that like, it's a big, heavy relationship. It's really important. It's a very kind of sacred, uh, quasi-familial uh, kind of relationship that takes a lot of um, attention and care. Flash mentoring is like, what's the 22nd version of that? And, and it, it takes all the heaviness out of it. And you basically ask someone, hey, can we just get coffee and talk about how you're such a good communicator? I want to get better at that. Or... Um, you know, you get getting some feedback from them on how you might get better at something and, and to grow that and to show that. Uh, so that's one way to, to sort of think about think about that. And to be intentional, a lot of the a lot of the the younger, more successful um, leaders that I've encountered are people who are extremely intentional about where they're strong and where they want to grow. And they will regularly reflect, especially at a year end, um, to sort of get as specific as they can about where they are right now and where they want to be in a year and the events, experiences, encounters, education that they want to get to move them up. And one of the concepts that I found kind of useful when it comes to moving up in career is, you know, we always talk about the career ladder, right? You know, it's a, it's a ladder. It's very clear up and down there's rungs you climb you fall and uh you're, you're probably already all over this but somebody recently pointed out it's better to think of it as a rock wall you know you mm. you may have to climb down a little bit in order to go up sometimes and you may need to move diagonally sometimes you may need to move sideways sometimes and each hold and each each toe hold and each each handhold is a little bit different and you have to adapt as you go um and it's, there's a lot, there's some creativity and there's some opportunity spotting. And so I, I think that is like, I find that to be a powerful metaphor for capturing kind of the mindsets and the skill sets that help people move in their careers. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't heard of, about that before. And yeah, that's, it, it's a very freeing metaphor um, because as, as you were saying, it's so, uh, it's so easy to get trapped in that ladder mindset yes. uh, and life doesn't work that way all the time. Sure doesn't. Uh, um, another behavior that I want to ask you about that really stood out to me is, um, is you talk about defining and leveraging your group's core tensions. Um, and I'd love for you to just kind of tease out what that is and how, 
Um, how can you go about dis- like discovering what is your your company or your organization's core tensions? Yeah, that's a cool question. I, I was one of the big surprises to me too, because like a lot of people, I had that I had that kind of happy fallacy at the beginning. I thought, well, life at Pixar is great, right? Like it's Pixar. They're making great movies, you know, and, and life in the Navy SEALs must be just really just cool all the time, right? They're doing all this cool stuff. And when you get there, um, what you find out is that what makes them cool is, is, is not that they don't argue. They actually argue more than other places and they actually have more tension. And their magical trick is to turn toward those tensions and define them so that they're actually talking about important stuff. They're not avoiding the tension. And every group has got tensions. That's kind of the cool thing. Uh, I'll give you an example from, from my experience with the Cleveland Guardians baseball team. There's basically a few, we did, we did something called a culture capture there where you, where you survey everybody and you talk to them about like, what's the most important thing we do here? What's the, what are you proudest of? What's the biggest challenge? Where are we going to be in five years? What do we need to fix? If there's one thing we could fix. And, and through the course of the, all that sharing and all that, you identify what the themes are. And there's basically three big tensions if you're a small market baseball team, which the Cleveland Guardians are. They have smallest budget, uh, second smallest budget in the majors. How are they going to win, right? And, and they can't just buy good players. You know, they have to have a great system for, for building them. And there's three core tensions there. One is the tension between innovation and tradition. Like, we have to innovate better than anybody else, but we can't let go of all the baseball wisdom and all the tradition and all the smarts that, that came up naturally. We can't completely go all analytics, right? So that's a tension, tradition, innovation. Another tension is development versus uh, winning. We have to like develop players and give, you know, let players these opportunities to grow, but we got to win games too. Like we're not just trying to develop, we're trying to win. Um, and there's a third tension between care and candor. Like we have to care for these players very deeply, but we got to tell them some really hard truths, right? So each of these, we have to do both. This idea that you can have an organization that just does good things, it's like, that's not true. You actually have to navigate these tensions. And from these tensions comes your energy. Like the most important conversation that can happen on the Guardians is between the young geeky analyst and the old coach. Mm. Like if we can get those guys to talk and figure things out and argue, we're going to get somewhere because we're going to learn something. So bringing, so realizing that that tension isn't a negative actually, and everybody's got tensions, right? We've got to take care of our customers, but we also have to keep quality really high. We have to invest in R and D, but we really have to market like crazy. We have to put all energy into, into coding, but we also have to make our packaging really good, whatever, like identifying what those tensions are and those interplays where you're, you know, that's actually where power comes from. And not to get too like woo woo, but like when you dig into any sort of power source, whether that's a like a combustion engine or an atom uh, or or anything, there's always tension being channeled in the energy, and and that's what smart groups do. They channel tension into productive energy, not you know not just you know into destructive fraction. Hmm. 
Uh, I want to go back to that example that you that you you were using with maybe the the baseball manager and you know the analyst. Um, you know, how do you handle a situation to where maybe you find yourself as the analyst and you are talking to someone like you know like the man or the ba- this case the baseball manager who maybe let's just say hey they've been they've been with the organization for fifteen years. Yep. Um, you've been there for two years. Um. And the person who's the manager has a lot more power and a lot more say in the situation. And they have, you know, their tradition and the analyst is having their innovation. How do you go about like navigating that? Group humility. Both sides, both sides. When it goes bad and it often goes bad, you have the analyst coming in with guns blazing and saying, here's what I found out. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's where you should position all your outfielders because obviously we're doing And it's ends up being really important. There's, there's a phrase called a backbone of humility, where humility is not weakness. Actually, it is strength. Where you come in and you say, "Hey, uh, you know, here, tell me more about this." You lead with a question. You lead with with curiosity. You don't come in with with confidence and and throwing what you did down. And it's funny, the general manager of the, of the Guardians tells a, tells a great story. And actually, he tells this story to all the young hires, especially on the analytics side. The story is when he was a young analyst, he did a catching study of all where how catchers should, should do their job. And he went deep for months and produced this incredible piece of work that sort of reanalyzed how catchers should function, how they should frame pitches, how they should move. And... And then he spent 20 minutes talking to the major league catcher and he realized he was missing so much. Like mm. he had this moment where he was just asking, just in humility, just asking some questions. And he realized he was missing a ton of the nuance. And so anytime you feel like you have the answer, <laughs> question yourself. Like, like anytime you're feeling super confident about making some discovery, Leave room to be wrong um, because that room is where the conversation happens. You have to create space so you can figure stuff out together. Um, and so when you realize when you're operating on either side of that tension, uh, coming at it with a backbone of humility is, is not, it's not like an option. It is absolutely necessary because if you come at it with arrogance and the idea that you have all the answers, you're just going to silo that and your team is going to lose out on the opportunity of channeling whatever you might've learned from that conversation. Yeah. Uh, just as, just as I'm, uh, you know, re- I'm internally reflecting on the conversation. I just can't help but think like you've mentioned over and over again, you've talked about curiosity, humility, and vulnerability quite a bit. Are there any other uh, characteristics or qualities or skills that you just keep seeing come up over and over again in great cultures? Fun. Hmm. Like fun. It's fun. Um, there's, a, there's a sense of play. Uh, it's, it's not always like giggly, you know, seashells and balloons fun, but it's like, you know, uh, talked about deep fun. Um, there's a sense of experimentation. There's kind of a spaciousness, I would say, where um, you can sort of, pause and say oh let's look at it a different way uh, great cultures are really great at pausing they're really great at pausing it's an underrated skill um, and the world always speeds up and the world always has another thing for us to do and the ability to like say wait 
let's just wait a second. Yeah. Let's pull back. Let's zoom out. Let's talk to some people before we run down this corridor. And let's really deeply think um, together about what that means. So that, that ability, I would say fun. And I would say, I would say pausing um, are both, are both definitely present. Uh, two other things I want to ask you about one of one of the behaviors, which honestly very much surprised me, uh, and as you talk about um, creating mon- creating mantras or creating statements mm-hmm. in there, which was a shock uh, to me. I'd be curious uh, to hear your thoughts on why. Why do you think that resonates so much? And if you don't have any mantras, how can you go about establishing some? Yeah, this all sort of connects to this question of direction. Like every group, every great culture and every, every group has to sort of self-organize when stuff happens and figure out what to do and where to go. And the way you do that is by establishing a really clear purpose. And the way you establish a purpose, as you said, is like having some kind of corny mantras and it sounds stupid. And I actually, you know, it was, it was kind of funny in the reporting for this book because whenever you'd go into a really great culture Initially, it always felt like a bit much, like, like, come on, guys, dial it back a little bit. You know, if you go into a Zappos, if you go in, even in the Navy SEALs, like they talk, they have these mantras all the time where they're always like, you know, the only day was yesterday and we shoot, move and communicate. And we're the quiet professionals. Like they can't shut up about how quiet they are. It's kind of ironic. They, they, they use this very similar language over and over and over again. And at first, it seems kind of silly, but when you think about it and when you actually look at some of the case studies of when this language comes to bear um, and becomes powerful, uh, it, it becomes clear that those corny mantras are actually functioning kind of like algorithms. You know, there, was a, there was a restaurant, uh, Danny Meyer, he runs a bunch of restaurants in New York. He opened one restaurant and it was very successful and he opened a second and it both restaurants started to struggle because Danny Meyer like was the culture. He was, when you, when he was around, you knew what to do. And we've always, we've all been around leaders like that, but when he had two restaurants, he could not be in both. And so the culture of both started to fail. And one day a customer in was insulted by the, uh, by a waiter, a waiter just totally insulted a customer and he realized he had a problem. And so he shut both restaurants and he went on a retreat and he started writing these mantras and the mantras are really kind of corny. It's like, we want athletic hospitality. Uh, we want um, mistakes are waves and servers are surfers of those waves. We want the excellence reflex and, and on and on and on and on. He started using this language to train and to hire and, to, and, and, in, in, and it became one of those places where you walk in and people would talk in this language. Um, but then there was a day where I was actually having breakfast with Danny Meyer and somebody in the corner dropped a tray of glasses and it made a huge crash, uh, disrupted this perfectly beautiful uh, environment. And, di- and then he started cleaning it up and Danny Meyer stopped talking to me and he started looking in the corner. And I said, what are you looking for? And he said, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to come together and clean this up and the energy level in this room is going to go up and I'm going to know there's a good culture here or there's going to be some blame, some anger, some resentment, and the energy level is going to drop. Um, as it happened, the energy level went up. But what a perfect litmus test. And that was like the moment when those sayings really snapped into focus, right? Like athletic hospitality, 
the excellence reflex. Mistakes are waves. Servers are surfers. Like super corny, super stupid, super smart because they map out. And what's True North on his map? Creating raves. Not serving good food, not making money, not having three Michelin stars, creating raves. Language is really, really powerful. And, and that's what mantras do. They use language to create meaning. And it's, a, it's everybody's job to like surface those corny mantras and, and make them real to help people navigate, you know, the problems they face and the, and the true north that they want to go to. Uh, how do how do you go about creating that language if you if you just don't have it right now? A lot of times it's there under the surface, and that's kind of the fun part of co-creating one of these mantra maps together. If you get a team together and start talking about what does it look like when we really screw up, what do we call that? What do we really want to do? I just did an event uh, with folks out at Microsoft, and one of them would, they were doing their mantra map, and what they came up with was do epic shit. And it's like. It's stupid, right? It's a stupid thing to say. It sounds like you're skiing, right? But but it actually really resonated in that ecosystem. Those words have real meaning because at one time somebody did something, you know, coding something and they were like epic shit. And then that became like meaningful. So the language is really particular to that particular team, to that particular ecosystem. And so it becomes less of a challenge of like inventing it and more of a challenge of like, it's already out there. We just have to dig it up a little bit and share it. Yeah. Well, I know that we've covered so much, but is there anything that we haven't talked about or that is really just top of mind that you want to make sure that we mention? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think the challenge to change right now is really top of mind for me, like the ability of cultures to be malleable, to stay connected, but adapt to new conditions. I think that is going to be like the skill um, and a skill set that doesn't just involve, you know, leaders, but really involves everybody being, you know, kind of the nerve endings of, of these big entities and figuring out what's going on and, and changing our culture and our way of interacting to adapt to these new challenges. That, that to me is super interesting. And, mm-hmm. and the kinds of problems that, that make, you know, that make great cultures. Yeah. Uh, can you just tease out what you were saying real quick of uh, just the, you know, it's easy to to talk about the leader and the lead and the leader does set the tone for the culture, but the role of everyone else in the organization helping set the culture. Yeah. You know, the, the culture is, is, uh, is, is really, uh, as I think we said before, it's the 15 feet around you at any time. And, and culture is not something that is delivered on high on a motivational poster and a inspiring mission statement. Most mission statements, when you look at them, are just all kind of the same. Like, there's not that many good ones, um, or they're all kind of so vague as to not be truly meaningful. And culture really is created in smaller groups. In and so, don't think in terms of you know culture with a capital C. Think of the lowercase C and think of the immediate team you work with. You guys have a culture, whether you set out to or don't. You have one, and maybe that culture is ignoring each other. Maybe that culture is is being very transactional, Um, but it's there and you have way more control over it than you think. Um, And simply asking a a, a little question, you know, like, tell me one thing I should keep doing. Tell me one thing I should stop doing or having an AAR or doing any of these little actions um, or playing the subtraction game can 
can can define you know you, the, the control that you have is much greater than you think because culture is not rooted in 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 words and it's not rooted in who you are it's rooted in what you do it's rooted in your actions well dan i know that people are going to want to you know keep up with you and get the culture playbook where's the place to go for people to do all those things yeah danielcoil.com is a good place awesome well thanks so much for being on the podcast today and thanks for doing the work my pleasure thanks for the conversation really enjoyed it caleb So coming out of that conversation, there's really two things that um, that really made me think throughout this whole conversation or that are still uh, resonating with me. One, I think, is the importance of curiosity. It was mentioned so many times uh, throughout this, but understanding, well, why does that work? Or help me understand, uh, you know, your, your perspective better. And the, just the learning piece of it, I know that's a shocker, um, on the learner's corner, I'm, uh, what stands out to me is learning and curiosity and all that stuff, but just realizing like what, what a consistent trait that is for, um, for highly successful cultures. And I think the other thing is, is what we were talking about in, in, uh, in the piece about the San Antonio Spurs culture is just realizing that sometimes the most important thing in life is not how successful you are at work or how successful you are in your organization and sometimes it's enough that you are with people that um that help your quality of life or you're with the people that are most important to you and you're doing the work that you love to do and even if you're not experiencing the success or the fruit of what you had hoped it was that that's okay and that doesn't have to be the most important thing and so for me you know one of one of the things um that i've been thinking about a lot that really i started thinking about a lot last year is is building a building a meaningful life and what that looks like and just realizing that um that success at work to me is not as important as it once was not saying it's not important but it is not as important as it once was. So those are some of the things that have stood out to me from this conversation. I would love to hear from you and some of the things that are resonating with you uh, from this episode. And the best way to reach out to me is Learners Corner Podcast at gmail.com with what you're learning from this episode, from previous episodes, or whatever that might be as well. And um, yeah, and if you want to keep up with me you know subscribe to the newsletter subscribe uh to the blog to where i'm uh sharing some of uh, the things that i am learning from and all of that stuff is in the show notes so that's all that i have for today i do want to say thanks to dan for being on the podcast today thanks to sam massey for providing uh the music for this podcast thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.